everyone, and welcome to Classics, Kana Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, film, and art. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, we explore one of the most important works in the formation of modern politics, John Locke's Second Treatise of Civil Government. Joining me for the interview is Jeanette DeSell Zorneman, Director of Instruction and a Master Teacher here at Kana Academy. We recently posted Jeanette's new guide on how to lead a seminar on Locke's treatise. It's a wonderful tool packed full of all sorts of helpful tips and strategies. And you can find it at our website. Just go to www.kanaacademy.org and visit our shop. I hope you enjoy this episode of Classics. We recorded our interview in Falls Church, Virginia. Welcome, Jeanette. This is a great opportunity to sit down and talk about one of the most important works in modern literature. I think teachers across the country who run seminars and focus on philosophy and teachers who cover American history, British history, and have to touch on philosophical foundations for especially modern constitutionalism all have to turn to John Locke's Second Treatise of Civil Government. Now, we we start today by noting that it's the second treatise. So what was the first treatise? We never hear much about that. His uh, first treatise was a refutation of Sir Robert Filmer's Patriarcha, which was written much earlier, but only published posthumously in around 1680. But it was picked up by those who were arguing for the divine right of kings as a foundation for absolute monarchy at the time. And his argument, in short, says that the king as a descendant of the biblical Adam, derives his authority directly from God. That's Filmer's argument, right? Right. And thus, the king is not like other human beings. He stands above the law. Now, I know this argument is kind of peculiar for modern readers, but it was compelling enough to Locke's contemporaries that he felt he had to address it. So his first treatise addresses that. The first treatise is hardly ever read or discussed, and it does have this kind of weirdly fascinating trapped in amber sort of quality to it, but it's not necessary to read it before studying the second treatise. Also, Locke does offer a summary of his refutation of Filmer in the opening passages of the second treatise, so the students can get the gist of his argument there. All right, that's really helpful. So can you give our listeners a quick sketch of the purpose of John Locke's uh, second treatise? Sure. He says in chapter one that he is attempting to discover the origin and the extent of legitimate political power. And at the end of chapter one, he defines political power very narrowly. Let me just read it for you so you can hear it. He says... Political power then I take to be a right of making laws with penalties of death, and consequently all less penalties for the regulating and preserving of property, and of employing the force of the community in the execution of such laws, and in the defense of the commonwealth from foreign injury, and all this only for the public good. That's from section three at the close of chapter one. So chapter one is where Locke just lays down this very sharp distinction between power and authority. And uh, he, he doesn't think that power confers authority on those who exercise it. Rather, he thinks that the authority of rulers is found in the consent of the people. And this is 
an important departure from some of his contemporaries. So book or chapter one establishes that political authority does not descend from King Adam, as Filmer argued, and it doesn't come from brute force. It has to come from the consent of the ruled. And the purpose of political power is for the protection of the community from domestic and foreign injury. So it's, it's not like other kinds of power. And in this passage that I just read you, he makes that clear that, that political power has the, is that which, which makes laws and which executes those laws in the name of the community, even uh, enforcing those laws uh, as far as a death penalty. So that's different from other kinds of power. Hmm. Now, Locke uses the language of the state of nature. Can you help our listeners understand what that means? Yes, that's very important for Locke's account. The state of nature is a term that was popular among other contract theorists, of which Locke is one. And uh, without getting too deep into the weeds, I'll just address his definition rather than compare it to others. He, he says that the state of nature is that condition that all men occupy unless and until they share a political contract. He gives his definition in chapter 3, rather pithily, I think. He says, Men living together according to reason, without a common superior on earth, with authority to judge between them, is properly the state of nature. So this is a pre-political status where men can live sociably with one another, and they can enjoy specific rights to life, to liberty, to property. But they also live in accordance with the law of reason, which is what he's alluding to when he says men live according to reason. And the law of nature commands, among other dictates, that men live in harmony with one another and that they not harm one another's life, liberty, or property. So Locke seems to think that this is a natural condition of men, that they are sociable by nature, that they're inclined to engage in all kinds of pre-political association without interference from a government. They engage in commerce, for instance, and they do it without any kind of governmental mediation. So he says those relationships that occur prior to a political contract and that are successful are based on honesty and fairness. So if a man cheats his business partner, his partner will expose his character to other businessmen and he will lose subsequent contracts. He says that uh, there are lots of different kinds of contracts that can men can make, but just one contract, he calls it the social compact, that removes men from the state of nature. And that social compact is the decision to join with others to establish a third-party adjudicator, which he calls government. So the key here, I think, for students to understand is that government is not natural to man. But liberty and equality and property, those are all natural to man. So this means that when men do decide to throw in their lot together to strike a political contract, they can't give up those rights to the government, their natural rights. And the government doesn't bestow them. These are God-given, pre-political, inalienable rights. Well, it sounds 
But just listening to that, it sounds like the state of nature, according to Locke, isn't as nearly as awful as Hobbes describes. Mm -hmm. So why then would men decide to leave it? That's a great question. In the state of nature, he says, uh, men are executors of that law of nature that I was just referencing. Uh, Take, for example, the rancher who pulls down the sod farmer's fence and then grazes his cattle on the farmer's land. And he does this in a way that destroys the farmer's crops. In the state of nature, according to Locke, the farmer has a right to execute the law of nature. That is, he can take the rancher in hand and he can, by force if necessary, seek retribution, restitution, punishment, some kind of consequence for the rancher's uh, breach of the natural law there. But let's say this isn't the first time that the rancher has done this. It's only the first time the farmer has caught him. Let's say the rancher killed one of the farmer's oxen when he pulled down the fence. So now we have all this pent-up anger building and the desire for vengeance. And that desire, Locke says, might exceed what we would regard as just retribution. So let's say the farmer goes uh, too far and he kills, say, the rancher's sons in retribution. You can see how this situation could escalate uh, pretty quickly. So this could become a widespread problem. The farmer and the rancher could find themselves engulfed in a kind of war. He calls it um, a state of war if it gets wide enough. And the conflict could quickly spread to other issues like water rights and railway rights. And before you know it, peace is, is lost. So Locke recognizes that some kind of third party execution of the laws of nature is really helpful in mediating these relationships sometimes. So men will find themselves making political contracts to uh, set up that third-party adjudicator. And it's not always necessary. So he recognizes, for instance, that international businessmen engage in trade, and they do this without uh, being in a, uh, a political contract together. In fact, they're in the state of nature with respect to each other. He says, for instance, um, this is, I think, in Section 14, he says uh, uh, a citizen of Switzerland could be in a trade partnership with an American Indian, and they obviously don't share a political contract, and they can do it in relative peace. Uh, but Locke also has in mind the ferocious power that's wielded by the monarch and the monarch's capacity for depriving ordinary men of their basic rights to life, liberty, and property. And that's another key player in the decision to form a political contract. And that that decision will be to restrain monarchical power. As teachers and students go through the treatise, they encounter a handful of what I would call $10,000 terms that all students should get their minds around. Power, freedom, nature. You just explained one of them. Um, all these come to mind. Maybe the one that stands out the most is property. Mm. If for no other reason, it encompasses a number of goods. Mm. So uh, for all of us, can you give us your best crack at the meaning and significance of property according to Locke? Yes. Locke's notion of property, I think, derives from what he believes is the biblical mandate to stewardship. That's the best way to put it, I think. He acknowledges that God has given the world to all men in common, he says, and and he's given it for their well-being. But humans have to find some way to cause that world to fulfill that purpose and to yield the fruit. And Locke 
locates that in the individual labor of men. So men have to, he says, appropriate the earth to make it fruitful. Let me read for you a key passage here from chapter 5, where he treats this problem. This is from section 27. Though the earth and all inferior creatures be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with and joined to it something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. So I think he's describing here how an individual accrues property through the sweat of his brow. So he cultivates the land, or he engages in hunting and gathering. It's, it's the individual's labor, he says, that's emanating from his self. So from his hands, from his labor, from who he is, that makes his, this otherwise unfruitful field fruitful. Enterprise, too, I think, is involved here. Perhaps a helpful example of this at work is the agreement the American homesteaders made when they moved west. They had to make some parcel of land fruitful, and if they were successful for five years, that land became theirs. So imagine an individual family works on a plot of, say, 160 acres. I think that was the um, acreage that was usually distributed. So they take 160 acres and they just labor on this with back-breaking work. They clear the field out of all those trees and they, they break the sod and they plant the seed. They put up fences uh, to protect the field from wild animals. They irrigate the soil. And then they harvest the crop before the weather can destroy it. All of this labor provides not just what this individual family needs, but it also, he says, increases the common stock of mankind. So how could that be? How, how is the common stock of mankind increased? He says, well, when the family creates a bumper crop and collects an excess, they can then barter that extra product for, say, a new plow or a new thresher and provide that crop to others in exchange. So that other who has exchanged with them has created an enterprising business as well. And they've, and the family, that's the, the farmer family, has not only just provided for themselves, but they're providing for others as well. So the, the underlying thought here is that when the individual succeeds, the wider community succeeds as well. And this, he says, is necessary for the improvement of everybody. And I think this comes up a lot when I teach this this uh, text, but one might ask how this privatization of the common stock is legitimate. And my instinct here is that Locke is relying on our natural sense of justice. So let's take the case of the family that invested five years of labor to cause that 160 acres to yield sufficient product. And imagine a marauder breaks into the barns and plunders the harvest. We know there's something wrong with that. The thief waited until the family had completed the harvest and then stole the fruits of their hard labor. He did nothing to produce that harvest, and he also broke the fundamental law of nature, that is, he took what was not his. The 
protection of property is really central to Locke's account. He's going to portray the absolute monarch as the marauder in my example. Hmm. He comes in and he takes what is not his, what has not been earned by him, and appropriates it. I think a lot of us know that John Locke had a significant impact on the American founding, but, but most American students, I think, don't actually read Locke. So why do you think that is? Why do you think, and you know, why do you think they should? Well, a lot of American students don't read the founding documents either, so we probably shouldn't be surprised they're not reading Locke. But I think it would be good to read both. They share a lot in common. We, you probably could speak more to this, but the founders were. Influenced by Locke, the declaration that all men are created free and equal, uh, the idea that government should be limited, that it should be predicated on the consent of the people, the property is important to protect. Uh, also, Locke, um, I don't think he originated this idea, but it's a big part of the second treatise. He says that there has to be some kind of strict division here between the legislative and the executive powers, and of course that pops up in the American founding. And also that we have to be governed by settled, impartial, and predictable laws. And those laws have to be equally applicable to all, even to individuals of great power and wealth. No one, uh, not the king, no one can get above those laws. And in America, that became really foundational to the um, to American constitutionalism. And these principles, I think, inform our rights under the law, and I think it's good for students to know their patrimony. But I I think it's worthwhile just reading Locke, even just Locke, to to wrestle with his ideas and to probe the second treatise for its weaknesses and its strengths is, is, is a worthy endeavor. I think you listed out five principles there, so if that's whether or not that's the right number. But of those principles you solicited out, which one of those do you think is the most important to Locke? Yeah, I tend to think the most important is the declaration that all men are free and equal, that those are critical marks of our humanity. I think that principle is foundational to all the rest. <clears throat> and that's a, a new vision for political theory. It's not particularly new to Christians, but it's, it's new to, to the realm of politics. Imagine making that declaration in the context of a political theory to a world of absolute monarchs. Or try saying that to a world where enslavement is common practice. These were revolutionary ideas. And I know we Americans tend to take these notions regarding liberty and equality for granted, but they weren't, nor are they, I would argue, even now, uh, necessarily the prevailing wisdom of the world. Uh, One might say that a a good portion of American history is the continuing expansion of that freedom and equality to greater numbers of individuals. So while the Civil War didn't initiate with that uh, goal in mind, it certainly eventuated in an effort to extend freedom and equality to the slaves. Let's talk about that idea of liberty, expand on it a little bit more. Can you say more about what liberty means for Locke? Uh, Some think that Locke's notion of liberty is the same as license. Mm -hmm. Just you're free to do whatever, uh, sort of without any kind of framework or fetters or context or, you know, social commitment. What what does Locke think about that? Oh, liberty is not the same as license for Locke. He makes this clear in chapter two. He says that 
license would compel a man to do whatever he pleases, but uh, the, the uh, liberty, true liberty, instructs a man to consult the law of nature and to act in accordance with it. And uh, the law of nature is kind of complicated. It has quite a few obligations, but at its most basic, it obligates men to live in peace with their neighbors and not to harm each other's life, liberty, or estate. He says that over and over again. And I suppose in its most basic, it's the freedom to organize one's life as one sees fit within the bounds of the law of nature, which I think for Locke is a kind of moral law. And it's binding to everybody because everybody has the capacity for reason. But it's also important, I think, to remember that Locke wrote extensively on religious toleration. And uh, he had a he had a remarkably uh, close uh, perspective on what the lack of religious liberty could do to a people. He lived in France, for instance, when the Edict of Nantes was still in um, still observed, but it was not long after his departure that that edict was revoked, and as a consequence, French Protestants were persecuted pretty viciously, and uh, many of them were driven into exile. And, of course, the struggles in his own country between uh, Parliament and Crown were fueled by extremely violent opposition on matters of faith, both Catholics and any number of Protestant denominations suffered ferocious persecution off and on. And um, for many years, the pendulum just swung between the persecution of one faith or another, depending on who occupied the throne and the temperament of the Parliament. So matters of liberty for Locke, I would argue, are not simply confined to matters of property. And I know that sometimes is a criticism wielded against him, but I think liberty for Locke is a richer and much more expansive conception. It implies not just a liberty to dispose of one's estate, but it includes the freedom to think and to express one's deeply held ideas without the fear of imprisonment or persecution or even death. <clears throat> and Locke found himself in personal, uh, at personal risk on at least two occasions. Once he moved to France and a second time he moved to Holland. And also, he didn't publish some of his um, work until after the Glorious Revolution. I think it was 1689 where we see a sudden uh, publication of his work. I might might also add here that Locke didn't always hold this position on religious toleration. It came to him over time through experience. I recommend that uh, teachers read his letter concerning toleration as they prepare to teach the second treatise, because I think it fills out this vision of liberty in a, in a deeper way than just the second treatise. When did Locke write the second treatise, and where was he when he wrote it? And that's actually something of a point of contention. He wrote a preface to the document that was published in 1689, and in that preface he lavishes great praise on William of Orange and the Glorious Revolution. But that would imply that the text was simply written as an endorsement of the Glorious Revolution. But some really important scholars uh, started cutting into this in the 1960s and 70s, and they made a compelling case that Locke was actually writing his two treatises in the years between 1679 and 1683, and that um, he only published it 
many years later for reasons of personal safety. And even then he published the treatise anonymously. So if it was written between the years of 1679 and 1683, he would have been in England during that time. Some have also pointed out that Locke worked on various revisions of this text right up until he died in 1704, and that he even made provision in the codicil to his will, which particular version he wanted published. So I think this speaks to his understanding that the text was important and it was more than just idle propaganda. I think it meant a lot to him personally. What kind of man was he? Can you give us a brief profile of Locke's family, his education, his career? Yes. uh, The 17th century was an incredibly volatile period in English history. And amazingly, Locke seems to have been at the intellectual center of all the really key debates of the time. He's considered the first British empiricist, and he wrote his essay concerning human understanding to articulate fully his epistemology. And that was a groundbreaking work. He also wrote extensively, as I said a minute ago, on religious toleration. And he dealt with a wide variety of other topics in his writings. He wrote on the scriptures extensively. He wrote on miracles. He wrote extensively on the proper rearing and education of the young. He wrote on the distinction between faith and reason. He wrote uh, documents on agriculture and navigation and on commerce And uh, I think he just had an incredibly curious mind. And he recorded his thoughts in these letters and treatises that we have access to, but he also recorded quite a bit of his thought in journals that he kept for most of his life, where in these journals he recorded um, various observations he had on nature and on um, any number of these issues, on human affairs, on politics. Those journals, I think, are now accessible. I think you can get a hold of those. Some of them are online, I think. Uh, he was born in 1632 in Rington, Somerset. His parents were Puritan, and his father fought in the English Civil Wars on behalf of the parliamentary forces against the Royalists, which is an interesting detail in his life. His family wasn't wealthy, so he needed to be sponsored for his education by someone else, and he was for Westminster School at London and then uh, Christchurch at Oxford. He received his bachelor's degree and his master's degree there at Oxford and remained on there for quite some time as a lecturer. But his real vocation seems to be modern science, and specifically to medicine. He was intellectually mentored at Oxford by the natural scientist uh, Robert Boyle, and he later became very enamored of Newton's writings. In fact, he later became a personal friend of Newton's in the, towards the end of his life. He was a licensed physician, and he did eventually receive his bachelor's degree in medicine. And it was his skill as a physician that initially brought him to the attention of the very powerful and important patron and mentor, Lord Ashley. Lord Ashley would later be known as the first Earl of Shaftesbury. Uh, Lord Ashley credited Locke with saving his life after Locke presided over a very tricky and kind of innovative surgery that uh, drained an infection from Lord Ashley's liver, which I guess this was an infection he suffered with for the the rest of his life. And uh, uh, Locke took care of him. In 16, 
1867, he left Oxford and moved to London to become Lord Ashley's personal physician at Exeter House. And then eventually his responsibilities widened, and they included a number of governmental positions and various missions on behalf of the Earl of Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury himself had an amazingly complicated career himself, and insofar as Locke was attached to him, he saw a great deal of the world through Shaftesbury's eyes. Both Shaftesbury and Locke spent a lot of time together talking about some of the ideas that Locke eventually wrote on, and uh, eventually Shaftesbury would need to escape England uh, to, to Holland in 1683, and Locke followed shortly after, but that's where Shaftesbury died. After William of Orange ascended to the throne in 1688, Locke was able to return to England, uh, but he had terrible asthma. I think he suffered with asthma most of his life, and he could not tolerate the poor air quality in London any longer. So he was eventually invited to and moved to Essex, where his very dear friend Damaris Masham and her husband lived, and he lived in their household for the last 13 years of his life until his death in 1704. And at the time of his death, he was working on notes, which commentators think uh, were a preparation for writing, perhaps on some of Paul's epistles. Hmm. I had not heard that before. Now, political works are almost always reflective of the times in which they are written. If that is so, in Locke's case, what are some of the most important historical factors teachers and students should note? Uh, that history is very long and complicated. Uh, I think you can be as detailed or not as you as you please, but there are some basic lines of history the students probably should know. I, you know, when we think about England, we think of it being this kind of green, verdant, peaceful, stable political entity, but it really wasn't at the time, especially uh, during Locke's years. These were the years when the battles between the Parliament and Crown prevailed. And that struggle was at least partly fueled by these incredibly violent religious um, persecutions uh, between all the denominations, between dissident Protestants, Roman Catholics, and the Church of England. Sometimes the savagery of that English civil war is just so shocking to me. So during Locke's lifetime, in his youth, he would have seen um, Cromwell's victory in that civil war, and he would have seen the establishment of the Commonwealth and then later the Protectorate. And he would have, uh, I think the beheading, actually, of King Charles I happened just a few blocks from where he was attending school, and that was a world-shattering event. It's just not every day the English kill their king. He also witnessed and seems to have at least initially endorsed the 1660 restoration of the monarchy under Charles II. But when it looked like Charles's brother James II was going to reintroduce Catholicism to a country that was looking increasingly Protestant, the Parliament rebelled and they pushed him out. And then they turned around and invited William of Orange of Holland and his wife Mary to cross the channel to take the throne. And this moment is called the Glorious Revolution of 1688. This is a remarkable moment uh, in English history. It signaled a final end to absolute monarchy. And it introduced this notion 
that Parliament, and thus the people, may choose its monarch. And if the Parliament can hire the king, they can also fire him. And again, you can imagine how uh, absolute monarchs throughout Europe looked at that event. It must have been a bit sobering. I think, as I said, teachers can introduce any or all of that or more. It's an incredibly rich period to study, and, and it's, it's just worth studying on its own. You know, Locke is often criticized. Uh, he's even vilified for being a source of a brand of radical individualism. Some people put their finger on Locke and run it straight to all the problems that we're burdened with today. What's your take on that, That uh, especially that charge of radical individualism? Does Locke envision a political society populated by autonomous individuals with little or no shared you know, common good? Well, Locke comes in for this criticism in waves. I think this is the third wave in our lifetime. And I know it's a complicated discussion, and I, I know there, there, are lots of, there are lots of pitfalls here, but I'm not really inclined to blame Locke or even the founders for the spiritual maladies of our age. If we have become a society of greedy, selfish, litigious individuals, and there is some evidence to support that, I'm, I'm more inclined to turn to the failure of our churches and to the collapse of the family. Those seem to be the two institutions most suited to addressing those issues, and both have been in crisis, I think, really, for the bulk of our lives. It's important to remember that Locke is not summarizing the entirety of human affairs uh, in the second treatise. He's not addressing the meaning and the purpose of human existence. In fact, his announced purpose is very narrow. Remember, at the very beginning, you asked me for the um, opening passages of the treatise, and he announces right there that he is only addressing the origin and the extent of political power. And I don't think Locke believes that the deepest needs of human beings can be addressed in the context of power. And politics is the realm of power, and power implies coercion. And Locke was very sensitive to the corruptive element that coercion can play in a society, especially when it touches on matters of faith and character. Matters of faith have to be imparted, he says, through persuasion and through education, not by force. So I think one could argue that Locke's decision to limit the reach of government actually frees up the public square for other kinds of association that go to the deeper needs of human beings. But we also know that a lot of his life, that these concerns about virtue and education and faith occupied a lot of his life. He was writing on those issues and thinking about them. And I guess I would say in answer to the critics, no government or public policy or political theory can solve these problems that we face. And sometimes actually it can be a bit of a problem making matters worse by encouraging bad habits or by interfering with um, issues that are best left to the conscience. And our politics and public policy really spring from our culture and they mirror the character of our people. And if our culture is in trouble, our politics will reflect that. Remember, 
The founders had a very strong sense that America is founded on self-government, and we have to live up to that by governing ourselves, and that begins with educating our children, I think. Mm, that's really helpful. What are some challenges that teachers and their students face in reading the second treatise? I think one of the biggest challenges the students face right away is the confusion of political power with paternal power. And I think that's likely the case because their single most important contact with power of any kind is with their parents. So it's key that they understand the distinction between those two kinds of power. And this comes up particularly when they're searching for examples of what they think Locke is saying. And they're tempted to invoke cases of parental power or to the power of their teachers or their school. So I encourage teachers to immediately direct the students to the distinctions he makes at the close of chapter one. And uh, he will elaborate on the distinction between the two in chapter six, but it's important to get this established immediately. I also encourage teachers to keep on hand a collection of court cases and historical anecdotes that will help the students flesh out some of these um, principles that he's discussing in the second treatise. Let's see, other problems. Well, this is a problem. The, his rhetoric is dry, and I think it's kind of funny, but it is dry, and sometimes it's difficult to penetrate. He uses arcane language. He says hath instead of has, or um, uh, inconveniences instead of inconveniences. He has some funny little arcane language that he uses. And also, he writes in what we would consider run-on sentences. So sometimes the main clause in a paragraph by Locke gets obscured with a great number of semicolons, and it's a little like, um, well, it's just difficult. The students have to learn how to push through uh, all of those semicolons to the main thought, the main clause, and the teachers need to teach them how to do that. And one way they can do that is they can read the text out loud for them and model how to push through those arcane pieces of punctuation and move forward. Also, I think it's good, Locke sounds so buttoned up on the page, but as I was saying at the beginning of our interview, his ideas are fiery, and uh, every now and then it's worth reading a passage out loud for the students. It helps them hear his passion. Hmm. That's a great exercise. This is a political text, so let me ask a question that is germane to Locke, but also germane to other texts. There are a handful of questions that I think that any student of politics needs to ask of a political writer. And I noticed that in the guide that you've written, you've included a collection of topics uh, that uh, political theory addresses in general. So can you talk about those some? Mm -hmm. In order to address what kind of political association makes sense for a people, the political theorist operates with um, some stated anthropology. Maybe it's explicitly stated or it's implicit. And that means that we as readers need to first uh, sort out how the author is describing or viewing the essential nature of human beings. Are human beings political by nature, as Aristotle asserts? Are they only social by nature, as Locke suggests? Are they full of this unbridgeable uh, antagonism towards one another? as Hobbes argues. How one thinks, in other words, about our humanity and purpose determines the kind of 
politics available to people. So here are some of the questions I think teachers need to think about. These are just some of them. I've written some more in the guide. But what, what's the difference, if any, between power and authority? Questions about the source of law and its authority are, are always preeminent. What's the purpose of law? So should laws improve the character of the citizenry? Or should they simply mediate conflict? What's the role of culture? So how should customs and manners and religion and education be treated? Does culture in any way relate to the health of the people and the political community? And if so, how? And given that, can politics say anything about those matters? Or is it another realm? Is it, are all those questions of culture relegated to another realm? How should crises be managed? I'm thinking specifically here of wartime. War poses especially uh, direct threats to the health and stability of a people, and that's true even for the victor. Finally, students need to learn how to assess a political theory. How does this particular account um, uh, account? How does this account? Um, Make, uh, make its, how, how do we look at this account in the view of the historical account and the legal record? Does it, does it illuminate our experience as human beings? Is the vision that this account has um, too reductionist in its view of human life, or does it capture the fullness of human experience? These are just some of the topics that a political theory should address, and the students will need to address those when they read Locke. And I've included a longer list in the guide. I think that's a really helpful element, and I, you know, I think teachers and students sometimes have not really thought about actually how to approach politics. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a really great tool you've given everybody. It's very different from any other inquiry they're going to be reading. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the reasons that I think that students ought to read, you know, challenging expository works, and it makes them think about really important things. And sometimes those important things are. are really difficult, perplexing, causes students to really wonder and, and question. So can you think of any particular perplexing problems in Locke specifically that the students would benefit from addressing? Yes. I, uh, I actually wrote some of these up in the guide. This is just a smattering of some of these. But if you look in the guide, you can see I call them uh, puzzles in Locke's account. And if the students have done a reasonably good job studying the text, they should be able to address some of these issues. And the first one I think that's important is the students need to confront the proposition that politics is not natural to man, that it's a matter of human artifice. This is such an important part of his account, and the students need to take it seriously and, and um, wrestle with that. The second one, and connected to the first, is they need to evaluate and confront Locke's somewhat innovative approach to what constitutes a people. And ordinarily, when we talk about a people, we define it in terms of its shared geographic space, its boundaries, its history, its culture, its ethnicity, its language, its um, religious traditions. But that's not how Locke addresses his concept of a people. And the students need to examine that. And they need to think about what is a people? What must a people share to qualify as such? How is unity going to be achieved apart from those above categories I just mentioned? 
ethnicity, culture, history, uh, shared uh, religious traditions. This seems like a, a big puzzle in Locke, and I think this issue goes to some of the concerns that his critics have, and it's, it's worth dwelling on. And third, once a people has been constituted in, in Locke's account, I think the students need to carefully examine who gets to decide how limitations on government apply. So Locke acknowledges that governments need revenue, and of course revenue implies taxation. So how does taxation not interfere with the individual's natural right to his property? And similarly, how does conscription in wartime not deprive men of their natural right to life? What about dissent? Do men have an individual right to dissent, or is that only a command, um, a kind of a communal command that they have? As a, commu- as a community, they can decide to dissent, but does an individual have a right to dissent? That's a big question. How can the abuse of power be hedged? How can the people secure their rights in the face of the coercive force wielded by that tremendously powerful executive power and and what's to keep that executive from wielding his power impermissibly say in favor of his associates Locke uh, says at one point that the, oh, actually he says it I think in three point three junctures in the text but he references the possibility of revolution which he calls uh, euphemistically the appeal to heaven and he refers to that as a hedge on the executive power but is there anything in between is there anything between peace and and uh, comedy and revolution. And what would that look like? Are there, is there anything in between that would make it possible to put restraint on the executive power? So those are just some of the questions that the students will need to um, address. And as I said, there's some more in the guide that will help teachers as they think about the text. Well, this has been really helpful, I think, for all of us who teach Locke. Um, and especially for secondary teachers, this set of remarks is really illuminating and a match with your guide. I think it's a, a dynamite help to, to help people master the art of teaching, especially when they're teaching this difficult text. Thanks a lot. It's a lot of fun. Okay, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Classics. I hope you enjoyed the interview and we'll keep the conversation going. We have more great episodes coming soon, so please join me again and bring your friends and family. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics. <laughs>